Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty. And a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health here in Toronto. Cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, compassionate facility. Right now, it is Mental Health Awareness Week. This is the time when they need you most. This is the time when you can make a real difference when it comes to doing something about the mental health crisis and the devastating opioid epidemic, the overdose epidemic that we're currently experiencing, losing 20 people every day. They need your help. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by HelloFresh, the meal kit service dedicated to making cooking fun, easy, and convenient. Each week, they create new delicious recipes with step-by-step instructions. It takes 30 minutes or less. You'll get 50% off your first box at hellofresh.ca slash CanadaLand when you use the promo code CanadaLand. Justin Ling. Yo. Freelance reporter. It's me. Today we are going to talk about the growing likelihood, long dismissed, that for many years a serial killer has preyed on Toronto's gay community. We are going to talk about Vice's incredible accomplishment. They have done what few Canadians have been able to do. They got out of a three-year contract with Rogers. (laughs) That's actually pretty good. And we will talk uh, about the deaths of Barry and Honey Sherman. Was it murder-suicide or was it a double murder? That all depends on which publicist slash investigator you are listening to. So this is a very special happy episode of Canada Land. Welcome back. <laughs> this episode of Canada Land Shortcuts is brought to you by Ahmad Aslam, Gerard Miller, Christopher Mullington, Laura DeGroot, Chris Ward, Brandon Canning, Deborah Daigle, and Michael Fitzpatrick. Hi, I'm Michael Fitzpatrick in Vancouver, and I support Canada Land because I feel that the uh, consolidation of ownership in news media in Canada is extremely dangerous to our society and democracy, and I think that it's really, really important to have strong, incisive, independent voices like Canada Land. 
And just in this episode, as I mentioned, is brought to you by HelloFresh. Have we talked about HelloFresh? Are you are you a, a home cook? No, as we just talked about uh, before the show, journalists have terrible nutritional habits. So I could use something like this. This is made for people with terrible nutritional habits. No, it's made for people who, <laughs> who, uh, who, whether you like to cook or you don't like to cook, you probably know that you should be cooking more because it's cheaper and more healthy. But there's all these disincentives to cooking if you're busy and meal planning and shopping and food waste. Those are reasons that stop me from cooking as much as I would like to, which is why I'm glad that something like HelloFresh exists and that it is so very good. They test all these recipes out in their food lab, which I have witnessed myself, which seems like a really fun job, actually. They make sure that the recipes work and are tasty and take less than a half hour. And then they send you exactly the amount of ingredient that you need. And it's all locally sourced, fresh, healthy, good stuff. If this sounds like a good idea to you, well, you get 50% off your first box because you listen to this podcast. Visit hellofresh.ca slash CanadaLand Enter the promo code CanadaLand when you subscribe, and you'll get half off the first box that they send to your home. Once again, hellofresh.ca slash CanadaLand. From missing persons to murder victims. A Toronto man has been charged in the deaths of two men who went missing from Toronto over the last year. Police arrested 66-year-old Bruce MacArthur this morning. And police believe MacArthur may be responsible for more disappearances. Justin, you have been trying to raise awareness about the possibility that a bunch of deaths in the gay village in Toronto through the years might be linked and maybe there's a serial killer and you've been trying to raise that awareness through your investigation in the face of the cops, I think up to like, like a month or two ago to say, no, 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 no serial killer. Yeah. Now there's been an arrest. Right. They arrested Bruce MacArthur just last week. We don't, and we don't know that the designation of serial killer is right yet, but we definitely think it, it's going to be. All right. I want to hear about your history with this. I, I have a very limited history with this where uh, Scott Thompson, the wonderful comedian yeah. uh, from Kids in the Hall, was on the show uh, summer of 2015. And after our interview, he said, you know, there, there are these three guys who went missing yeah. years ago from the village. And all they seem to have in common is that they're brown skinned, middle aged and gay. Mm hmm. And actually, I've heard from Scott on this too. He sent me a message not and long he, ago. Yeah, and he, you know, like, it, can you look into this? It sort of went away, and this was years after the disappearances. And I, I mean, I don't know how to investigate any murders or, or suspected murders, disappearances. But I did make a couple of inquiries. I emailed uh, a police officer named Debbie Harris, who, according to an early media report, she had been on the case. And when I got no response from her, oh, she retired. She, she was the lead in the investigation and she... And then she retired. Well, yeah. that would explain the no response. <laughs> so then uh, Danielle Bottineau is the uh, LGBT cop. Mm -hmm. she's, she's sort of her beat is uh, the queer community. And I got no response from her either. And, and I just didn't look into it further. You went a lot further than that. Um, can you give us like a truncated like... Yeah. Okay. So uh, I'm going to give you the, the very, very short history. So in 2010, a guy named uh, Sked and Everatnam uh, left Zipper's bar in, in the village. It's now closed. But uh, at the time, it was like a community bar. Never seen or heard from again. His friends basically said, this is suspicious. This guy is not known to take off like this. He has a job looking after an elderly guy. He just adopted a puppy. He's not the kind of guy to take off like this. People raised concerns. Police opened an investigation, never found anything. Uh, later that year, towards the end of the year, around Christmas, a guy named Abdul Basser Faizi uh, was going out in the village, basically bought a burger after a long night, and then 
no evidence of him ever again. His car was found a little bit further north around Bayview Avenue, which if you don't know Toronto at all, I don't know where that really is either. It's kind of like East York. Um, so he was never seen or heard from again. He was married with kids. His wife didn't seem to know that he was gay. Um, the strong suspicion there appeared to be, uh, that he simply couldn't live a lie anymore and just took off and for some reason abandoned his car and didn't take any money. So, you know, there's a bit of a stretch later on in 2012, uh, a guy named Majid Kayan basically leaves a family gathering, a couple of days later, he's caught in security footage leaving his apartment building, never seen or heard from again. Um, very little information about what happened, to him, what what he did, what happened to him. Even you know, he had very few friends, not close with his family. So these three cases by themselves are mystifying. I mean, you know, I've spent an ungodly amount of time going through missing persons cases. The, the similarities between these three guys are just, it's so wildly unlikely to have three cases like this in that span of time with these level of similarities. All three uh, were brown skinned, two were Middle Eastern, one was South Asian. All three were you know, both 45 to 60. Uh, all three had beards. Suffice to say, if you put the faces side by side, it's impossible to ignore the fact that there's an obvious similarity there. In 2013, cops launched an investigation called Project Houston where they basically announce, we think these cases are suspicious and we think they're connected. So it took a whole year for the, the last guy to go missing before they actually launched a proper task force. So that happened. Police conduct a series of interviews, investigations, production orders. And it wasn't too long after that that I started getting interested. Um, you know, just looking at this case, there was a flurry of media activity uh, when it first came out and then nothing. I mean, you know, years went by. There'd be a, an occasional story from the you know a newspaper in Brampton there'd be the occasional kind of blog post about it or a web form about it but the amount of silence on this was was bizarre i mean compared to other murders missing persons cases involving you know white women or white guys um and it's just there's no comparison Going to the cops, I had a really pretty similar, basically, experience that you did. I figured out some of the cops that were actually on the task force and reached out to them directly and didn't hear anything. So I tried and tried to try to get it to the point where I was, I probably sent, you know, five or six emails that went unresponded. Just they, like, that surprised me. I mean, just to get no response, yeah. not, not even like here, talk to the communications person. Well, eventually after some, some harassing phone calls, I get a call back from one of the lead detectives on the case. At this point, you know, I'm, I'm kind of just pushing them and pushing them. And, and they're basically telling me something that is, is quite true. As a police officer investigating a missing person's case, you do not have the freedom to release information as though it's a murder case because, you know, people still have privacy rights even if you're gone missing until you're declared dead. Um, there's always a chance that you could come back and you don't want to come back to the discovery that police had leaked all of your information and, had, you know, confirmed that you were at a gay bathhouse that night or what have you. Okay. That information was already out though, wasn't it? Yeah, but it's about whether or not police are confirming it. It's, okay. it's, it's, and, and so there's, there's some nuance there. They can give some, but um, they're quite right in saying that a missing person's case can't be designated cold. So usually when you, when you say this murder is cold, you can release a little more info, you can talk to media, you can generate information. That doesn't really happen, happen with missing persons cases. And there's probably a good conversation to be had about, can we fix that? Is there changes to be made there? Yeah. To give police more flexibility to do that. So anyway, I mean, they did, they did provide me some details, but not, not a whole lot. Um, you know, I just did some outreach um, to folks in the community to try to reach out to friends and family uh, and finally publish something in just this uh, in the summer of 2017. I published it the week before Andrew Kinsman went missing. So Andrew Kinsman um, we, we, is basically confirmed by police is dead. He was murdered and police connected his disappearance right after Pride weekend to the disappearance of a guy named Salim Essen, who uh, you know, had, had struggled with with some issues, but was basically on track to um, become himself an addiction counselor and to, you know, to go and help others. Uh -huh. By all accounts, he was getting his life on track. 
and he disappeared. And initially, police seemed to chalk it up to an overdose or runaway or what have you. But eventually, with these five cases sitting in front of you, it was so hard to deny that somebody had targeted the village. Essen was was frequent in the Church and Wellesley village. Andrew Kinsman was a you know very very involved in the gay community. You know, f- this level of disappearance doesn't happen in the village. And and so finally we have the arrest of Bruce MacArthur, and then uh, Archie Mann over at Extra, he finds that not only is uh, Scanda, one of the original disappearances, um, linked to MacArthur through Facebook, but in fact they dated, yeah. which seems like much more than a coincidence. And the cops are saying we think that there are more there are more murders here. And I mean, there's another. So we're going to find out more and more connection between yeah um, between MacArthur and, and the three original missing men. Okay, well, I mean, we need to know the d- details to discuss the media response. But we are here to discuss the media response and what criticism the police are getting is largely that it took Kinsman's death for them to take this seriously. That this guy was uh, a uh, a white guy who was really well liked in his community and had done all kinds of uh, community work. And, and when he went dis- missing, it was much harder. There was a lot more of an uproar. Like we, we don't just accept that he took off from his life. I'm not going to condemn anyone because I think that when you do have people, as at least one of these guys was living a double life, it's a dramatic way of being. And, and you know, the theory that like, well, people just, you know, the pressure of that suddenly they might just take off does cast some doubt into, into the situation. But there's also a racialized element to this that maybe the cops would have taken this more seriously if they had all been white. Um, the fact that they are gay men. Um, the fact that one of these guys was an addict, do you think that that had anything to do with both the media's willingness to just kind of like let these go and and maybe consequently the cops? All right. So there's, there's lots of nuance here. So I'll, I'll say a couple of things. First off, you know, of these five guys, really only two of them had substantial friend networks or even family networks that really came to their um, you know, to their side. And so that was never at them, the first one to go missing. So the, at that point, we had no real, you know, suspicion that there was there was other cases in, involved. His friends led a postering campaign throughout the village. Uh, we're doing searches of parks. We're pressuring police. We're actually really on it. Uh, there was media attention around that. They really pushed the file. And I think they did a fantastic job. Unfortunately, at that point, there just was nothing to connect it to and nothing to kind of suggest that it was, in fact, a murder or that it could happen again. Um, and then, really, the other three guys in between... Um, didn't have you know, friends and family that went to bat for them. I mean, Faizi's wife was seemingly devastated that, to learn that her husband was gay. Cayenne uh, really did not have a lot of friends and family in the city. Um, Essen had a couple of close friends, but you know, no big network. And it wasn't until Kinsman, who had this giant network of friends and you know family and acquaintances who all kind of banded together and just led this big um, push. Like, there was a point in time where you could not walk anywhere in Toronto without seeing his face on a telephone pole somewhere. Yep. They put so much pressure on police. I've sp- spoken to some friends of his recently, um, and they've basically been telling me that you know police have admitted you know if not for the level of pressure that these people were putting on, there would not be the level of response. Now, of course, they still would have investigated, but not this level of kind of media attention. You know, the community advocacy may be as much of a factor as any kind of bias or uh, marginalization. Yeah. You know, any any kind of bigotry or anything like that. That you know, if people are pushing and demanding answers, that actually has a big impact on. That being said, yeah. all that being said, there was definitely an el- a belief here 
that because these guys were Arab or South Asian, because they were, you know, their culture, their religion was kind of clashing with their sexuality, that that might be the reason that they ran away or overdosed or killed themselves. Or killed themselves. That was also floated. That, that, that It was easy. Well, there's uh, so much shame and, you know, who knows what happens to people who are, you know. So we know that police were looking into Bruce MacArthur um, probably back October of last year. Uh-huh. Right into December, police were saying, we do not believe a serial killer is active. And police were telling me, basically, they still thought SN had overdosed. Um, which that, is, I mean, like they were actively, is, like, yeah. in December, the cops were saying, we do not think they this were, is a serial I killer. Mean, yeah. The evidence today tells us that there is not uh, a serial killer based on the evidence that's involved. I'll say this, because people have been bringing this up a lot. Um, if police were, in fact, investigating MacArthur and doing heavy surveillance of him and believed him to be a serial killer or, ever, you know, a, a, a repeated murderer, I could understand the justification for not wanting to tell the public, but they... A, should have recognized that, you know, it was it was irresponsible to rule out the idea of a serial killer, which they effectively did, dating back to 2013, 2015, 2017. Um, before they were investigating Bruce MacArthur, they kept throwing water on the idea. From a public safety point of view, right? Like, it, Listen, I'm not saying they should have come out and, you know, uh, banged the gong and said, uh, there's a serial killer operating, but... It, they should have at least said it's a possibility. I mean, um, they actively said, we do not think that's the case. The evidence doesn't support that. We don't have the facts in front of us to lead us to that conclusion. But really, if you look at the facts of the case, these five guys, it's really hard not to... Like, Occam's razor kind of leads you to believe it's a serial killer. I mean, otherwise, yeah. you have to come up with some pretty elaborate uh, reasons for their complete yeah. disappearances. It's so uncommon for people to actually just disappear. Usually, yeah. you find a body or evidence or bank records or, or whatever, and this there is nothing. What, what's happening now? Because you're continuing to investigate this, and, and what happens when they got a guy in custody? Because the question, I guess, is, is he going to cooperate and talk about everything he's done, or yeah. is this going to be uh, uh, on, on the cops and, I guess, on reporters looking at this to try to piece together the Yeah, history. and we're, we're getting there. You're going to see a lot more, I think, in the next week. Now that the media is properly on the trail of this, the way they have not been for the last several years, we're going to start finding connections uh, between these guys, potentially Bruce MacArthur, finding connections with with other things. Serial killer targeting Toronto's gay village, it's kind of a big deal. 100%. And I, I have not seen the level of media coverage that I was expecting. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health. Right now, there is an opioid crisis. Right now, there is a mental health crisis. But right now, it is Mental Health Week. And what that means is you can do something about these crises. You can help people. You can help CAMH save lives. They offer treatment with dignity, and they are doing cutting-edge research. I don't know if anybody listening to this is untouched by this crisis. You can see it in the downtown of every city in this country. You certainly feel it in Toronto. This is not something happening to other people. These are our friends. These are our communities, our families. We are all touched by addiction. We are all touched by the mental health crisis, and we all share responsibility to do something about it. Helping CAMH is something you can do about it. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where nobody is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help them treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars And I I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. 
It is a mattress that sleeps cool. It doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. Justin, let's talk about some good news. Oh, jeez. And there's been some awesome news over at Vice. I read their uh, recent press release. Uh, they announced Vice acquires full control over Vice Canada Studios and Vice's content library. That sounds really good. They also it's, said- It's a good spin, to be it's, fair. Oh, it's great. They said, look, Vice will continue to grow in Canada in 2018. Uh, we have a lot of opportunity ahead of us, and we'll be announcing some new exciting partnerships soon, says Vice Canada President Ryan Archibald. That's all good stuff, right? No. What's happening today? We're recording this uh, on Wednesday. It's going to come out on Thursday. So by the time people listen to this, what will have happened? At least from what I've heard at the vice office, there will be layoff notices issued at noon today. So noon yesterday for, for the listeners. Um, and that voluntary buyouts have already been offered to a number of people and that people have been taking them. Yeah. The, 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 this is the consequence of Rogers uh, pulling the plug on their partnership, uh, vice acquiring full control over their vice candidate studios because Rogers doesn't want it anymore or the content library. And the spin, it's a bit of an insult slap in the face of the people who are going to lose their jobs. Yeah. That, that press release really, really bugs me. Um, luckily, I, I think the sort of upside is that I, I think they let the union put out a release kind of before that. The union sent out a release to members just a couple of days ago saying, we know layoffs are coming. Here are your options ahead of you. We'll be talking to you in the future. But yes, management sounds absolutely delusional, as they have frequently over the last couple of years. What do you mean delusional? Here's Shane Smith a year ago. <laughs> 12 months from now, we'll be on the cover of Time magazine as the guys who brought millennials mm. back to TV. That's how it fucking works. That's what Shane Smith said. Uh, this was a bad idea from the start. Uh, Viceland, it's a TV station. It's a TV channel. Not a good idea for, for people who don't watch TV. Let me let me say this because it's a thing that people always miss in the kind of language around this whole thing. Uh, it's that it was never just for the TV station, right? Especially for Rogers, right? It was about uh, paying for the creation of content that could later be relicensed or reused a thousand other places, whether it's Air Canada, which was actually a partnership they did sign, or Netflix. Oh, dude. If, if, if from Vice's perspective a year ago, or uh, sorry, uh, when this when this deal yeah. came into being, it's like if Guy Lawrence at, at Rogers wants to give us $50 million to make videos, and we make videos anyhow, uh, and then we can go and use them any way we want, who wouldn't take no, that? No, 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 but this is important. It's not, it's not that Vice could use it any way they want. It's Rogers had a stake in the future use of that product. So Rogers was going to get a cut of whatever kind of future use of that of the content uh, where it goes. And that would include content that would kind of be for the U.S. Uh, Which was Vice always office. part of the dream, was that, is that now there's this huge mm -hmm. demand for Vice Video over at HBO for their daily yeah. Vice. That didn't really happen. The, the, the Canadian-made programming, there was a lot of hope, I think, uh, at Vice Canada, where until recently you worked, that a lot of those shows would get... Uh, Shane Smith and Eddie Moretti behind them, and they would be uh, everybody would be on that Daily Show. There was a lot of frustration. I'm aware that New York was looked down their nose at the Canadian product and didn't. Oh yeah, no, no, no. Uh, that that is a. Uh, uh... 100% true. I dealt with that office all the time. Lots of really good journalists and producers over there, but the, the kind of leadership was just completely antithetical to anything Canadian. They were producing an American show. I think when Guy Lawrence signed that deal, it was this idea of, okay, you know what? We're going to forge a partnership that will give us kind of a stake in content that people are going to want to use and sell and, and, and pass around for you know five, 10 years. 
that may in and of itself been a bit, sorry, a bit, very optimistic. But I, I, there is some wisdom in it. I, I kind of can see why you'd want to you know, buy a stake into a company that was producing a like kind of high-quality video that was kind of leading a lot of other creators uh, and was doing something different. That being said, it was a huge gamble. Of course it was. And when Guy Lawrence got pushed out, uh, the Rogers family just never saw the wisdom of the deal. They looked at it and said, is the TV station making money? No, fuck it. And I, I kind of get that too. And that's basically where this all came down to. But Guy Lawrence's idea for this deal, I don't think ever actually hinged on the TV station. It was a content play as much as it was. Yeah. I mean, they had this station to fill and they wanted the subscription exactly. dollars. It was sort of maybe... incidental that they broadcast sure. it. I always butt up against the idea that Vice is a, a, a young person's company. They don't sell anything to, to their young audience. Like there's not there's not a lot of cash transaction. The money comes from old media. Like Vice is not new media in, in many ways. It, it, the money yeah. comes from Disney. The money comes from Rupert Murdoch. The money comes from Rogers, and the, the money comes from well, no, and creative. So they they do a heavy like a lot of advertising uh, right. and, and, and creative brand and content. Basically, if you are having a huge trouble difficulty establishing yourself with young people, right? Like if you if, if you are a major player who looks at your demographics and say, oh, this is falling off a cliff, who can help us connect to this young audience? Vice is there to say, we'll take your money, we'll help you with this. Yeah, I don't know. That, I mean, that, that's not, that's not, like people pretend as though that's some bizarre business model that no one's ever done. That Companies do this all of the time. You, you contract out content creation or, um, you know, sort of production to somebody who actually gets the demographic better. I mean, like, let, let, I mean, let's, let's look at this in a different way. Uh, you know, we could probably get into a bit, some big arguments about of course we could. vice on the whole right now. I want to look at this in the context of, of Canadian media. And th this really was a, a like a bonanza for content creators. I mean, both, both journalists, video makers, TV people, documentarians flooded with cash. Right, I remember it was just this was just happened over the past couple of years where anybody who is involved, I mean, documentary filmmakers who've been starved for resources for years, suddenly it's like, oh, pitch us a show, pitch us a show. We got cash to burn. They rapidly hired like what over a hundred people. Yeah. You know, were, I think they were pushing two hundred when I left. Everybody I know who worked there as a journalist was like encouraged, pitch your own show. You could be on on the air. Pitch yeah. a show, pitch a show. From the start, there was this arrogance of we're not going to work with TV industry people. We want outsiders. We don't we don't want this to look like normal TV. So we're going to have people from YouTube, people who make documentary films, people who do gonzo. That's sort of true. There's also traditional production companies, film companies, and you know former CBC employees. Who well, more in. and more because yeah. as that first thing didn't work out because you actually have to like follow schedule. Like it's very difficult to yeah. produce that much content. They started hiring grown-ups and yeah. having people come. Anyhow, there's a huge amount of churn. Still correct, yeah. Very chaotic. A lot of people got bruised a lot along the process. But there was money to make stuff. This is what happens when you scale up too quickly. And again, I think this maybe was the the original problem with the Rogers deal. It wasn't an idea of okay, let's you know trial some stuff, let's you know get some stuff going, see where stuff fits, and figure everything out. It was when the Rogers deal got struck. The American side was having trouble figuring out all the licensing and, and shit for its TV station. So. Vice Canada was like, Rogers, come in, let's do this, let's do it now, get the money in, let's go, let's go. And everything was very excited, and they were just throwing money at it, and everything ramped up. But, like, you can't scale up that quickly, especially when you have a company run by people who don't really know yeah. what it's like to run a big company. And, like, you know, the, those guys over there, I like a lot, and I'm sure someone is in a glass office at the Vice office right now throwing something at the wall because they're listening to me. But uh, these guys didn't have experience running a company, and it showed. And when you just throw money into a pit, you're going to lose a lot of it. And I think that's part of the reason the, the, the Rogers deal got so unattractive at a point, because it's like, this money is not efficiently being spent. What Vice produced for that money ended up, most of it being really, really great. I mean, you have 
shows that really, you know, hit the mark, like Nirvana, the band, the show, which everyone's raving about. I still haven't watched, but I probably should. Isn't uh, that funny? That, I mean, it, it, it's a, you were talking about the quality of the shows are going to run through them, yeah. and tell me that they're good shows. But you're making a pro- like no one watches shows. Like, like it, that's not the format. Yeah, but you're making a case for just canceling TV. I mean, we we have it now, and we're gonna. Well, that, that was the project. Shane it. was like, like, "I'm gonna bring them back to TV." It's like, no, you're you're, well, you're you operating against the trend. The trend is going the opposite direction. Yeah, I mean, was Shane very stupid to promise that he's gonna pull an entire demo back to TV? Yes. Well, Shane will promise what he needs to when he needs exactly. To. But I mean, they they did in the end do good, not not great, good, and like picking up. <laughs> Picking up some new viewers in the demo they needed to hit, and and some of it was really good journalism. You know, my friend Ben Maku, show uh, Cyber Wars is fantastic, and is you know move the needle on a bunch of different issues around like. Cyber yeah, I'm, and... I'm not really looking to disparage anybody who put yeah. a lot of good hard work into you know. I mean, but, but Maddie yes. Matheson yeah. really put his heart and soul into every. <laughs> no, what I'm talking about is I mean, this. This is sort of like a long story in Canadian media where we're always just looking for the next pot of dumb money. Yeah. Who's going to be the next dummy to to start a magazine? Get the money first and figure out the business model later. Yeah, or not even figure it out. Just spend it. Just make stuff. <laughs> they never figured it out. True, it, yeah, was, yeah. it wasn't, because you want to make this about the quality of the content. Even if that content had been excellent, yeah. there was no business model that worked. Yeah. It, it was maybe done from the start, you know? We, we Like, I, I want a rationalization to take place where we're not just in search of the next pot of dumb money and instead, like, well, what is, even if we have to go super micro and really run media at a very small level where you're not talking about $50 million investments, but $1 million or $100,000 investments, how can you make something that actually is in the black? No, no, okay. So I, I agree agree with that. But at the same time, uh, I, I find this poo-pooing uh, of, of the opportunities in front of us a bit difficult. It's like, you know, I, I heard this for some time. It's, it's, it's oh, yeah, you know, you know Rogers and Vice are throwing money at it and uh, it's not going to work. What we need is more, but, but, but. They were right. But yeah. yeah, yeah, but okay. fair enough, but then do it. I, I, I realize it's a bit weird me lecturing you because you actually have done it. So fair enough. But, you know, we don't have the ecosystem that has supported those, those microsites either. And I know a lot of very, very talented journalists and managers who have embarked on this to try to find capital and resources to even hire three journalists to start microsites and it's not happening so it's one thing to say oh what we need is you know is smaller things with a business model with a revenue source that's fucking hard too i wouldn't look a gift horse in the mouth of course it's hard but but, but there's this there's this conclusion people reach that because you can't find an investor there there, there is no viable business model or because you can't find another okay, but, another but dumb I mean, money investor even your business model is is is, is, is also you know on, not unlike vice um you know dependent on people giving you money yeah, well, there's but, a big but difference. It's different for you because you're asking many people as opposed to one corporate well, I'm benefactor. Looking, I, but I'm, ask, this is, I'm asking the people who I make this stuff for. To get, Vice never. That's, what, that's Vice, what Vice did. No, Vice from the start. I remember talking to Gavin in Montreal. He's saying, "Why would you talk to Gavin?" Well, no because he was uh, at the time. He was he was the guy, and he said, "We will never charge money for this magazine." That was their brilliance in a way. It's like we we make something for an audience, and we will never ask them for a dollar. And every time Vice strayed from that and actually said, "Let's set up a store and sell clothes. Let's ask people to spend money on a DVD," it always flopped. Whenever they went to their audience and said, "We'll give you content. You give us money." It flopped, which tells me something about that relationship not being necessarily as robust as they've always claimed what? it to be. That's the abs- money always came I mean, from daddy. That's, that's an absurd. Like, how many websites, how many newspapers, how many, uh, you know, content vehicles um, have tried paywalls and had to scale them back because they had the exact same problem? This is I where mean, it's going, man. It's, uh, reliance on advertising yeah, is, is, going, is dripping away, and we're going yet. towards asking people so, to pay for their media. That's but, actually working at a very not. small right. scale. But for you, to, for you to go and say, oh, well, when Vice has people, to pay. They don't want to. That's Vice's problem. No, it's been everybody's problem. It's not specific to Vice. And I, I, I always find the Vice double standard frustrating. Like, is Vice a well-run company? No. 
Obviously not. Is, <laughs> are there problems advice? Yes, obviously. But we we pick on them as though they're this they're, they're the only problem in media. But like it, they are they're facing the same problems that plague every other company in the media sphere. And their problems are more acute because they're more out front because they got this insane evaluation that will never ever actually go public. Yes, I but, happen to think that there is something remarkable about running for decade after decade a business for millennials and young people where you never do business with millennials or young people. That to me strikes me as, as remarkable. What do you, you you want you want them like you want millennials pay for like the monthly vice package like that doesn't work for BuzzFeed that doesn't work for Vox that doesn't work for let me name every other media site hear me out let's say they went into partnership with Rogers and I could only get the content if I subscribe to Rogers then no of course that's not going to work but it's not going to work for anything else either like any specialty channel is not going to work oh you can have MTV but you have to pay just for MTV no it doesn't work that way yeah like we wouldn't talk about much music that way ever to be continued, but for now... No, uh, that's I'll, it. <laughs> Never coming back on the show to talk about Vice ever again. If you're losing your job at Vice, come bring us some yeah, stories yeah, here at Canada. As much as I, I, you know, we're, we're debating about... There's a, there's a lot of incredibly talented people who work at Vice, and a lot of the time they were fantastic, irrespective of the management yeah. system that was there. So if you are getting a CV from somebody who used to work at Vice, for the love of God, uh, give them a job. That's that's the good message there, Justin, is that it, a lot of people in a hiring position listening to this now, there's about yeah. to be an influx of talent on the market, so... So hire these people. Let's duly note. May I go first? Uh, yeah. I want to duly note a piece that Now Magazine ran, written by Alan Shepard, the father of Darcy Alan Shepard, who was killed uh, by Michael Bryant, the former Attorney General of Ontario. The reason why Alan Shepard wrote this piece is because Michael Bryant has just been named the Executive Director and General Counsel of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. Uh, Alan Shepard has been on the show before talking about his son's death and talking about Michael Bryant, who never faced trial for killing his son. And I feel really bad for Alan Shepard that he has to relive this because Michael Bryan has been on a multi-year campaign to rehabilitate his reputation uh, uh, with a lot of cooperation from the media. He wrote a book about the incident. He did like an apology tour. He was on the cover of Toronto Life. Uh, then Canadian Lawyer Magazine profiled him. Whatever happened to Michael Bryant, there's sort of this like conceit that he sort of like disappeared mm. to to humble himself, uh, isn't looking for attention. We found him. We found him redeeming himself, doing charity work, uh, and, and, and working at the lowest rung of the justice system in a bail court. And then Metro Morning at CBC, they had this series, The Do-Over, people who were trying to make a second go of it. And they profiled Michael Bryant again. Here he is. And, you know, and, and I called Matt Galloway on this thing. Like, why do you have to help this guy rehabilitate his image? And Matt Galloway responded to me to say, like, well, we asked Michael Bryant onto the show because he's doing work at the lowest rung of the justice system. And the story of change in his own life is compelling. I, I got to say, like, Michael Bryant is lucky to still have his l license to practice law. He's lucky to still have his freedom. There are people who work at the lowest rung in the bail courts. Because that's an honest job. There's nothing like, you know, uh, benevolent or, you know, charitable about doing that work. Uh, this piece that I want everybody to read by Alan Shepard is titled CCLA, What the Fuck Were You Thinking? And it's all about the differences between rights, the the rights, civil, civil liberties, rights that we have, and privileges, which is what Michael Bryan had, because none of us would have gotten the treatment from from the legal system or from the media that Michael Bryant has enjoyed. And that's a privilege that he enjoys and continues to enjoy. Yeah, I mean, the media loves a redemption story. I mean, that's it's a common narrative. And I mean, I, I think it's 
it's often kind of gross. Um, you know, whether it's sure he used to be a virulent racist, but now he's feeding kittens. Like they, they, we love that shit. Like people eat that up. And yeah, I, I can I can see the, the I can see the the wheels turning in the producer's head you know, why they go there, and I don't think a lot of the times they realize the grossness of it until people actually call them out. Yeah, and you know, people got mad at me like, you know, what do you want, Michael Brown just to die in a corner somewhere? Isn't he like, shouldn't he be Still allowed to have be a, a regular second person. chance? The, you know what? Uh, absolutely, the, the redemption is possible. People who do terrible things, you know, uh, life goes on, and, and and forgiveness is not a value that I don't believe in. I don't think that this guy has ever taken any responsibility for his role in this. Mm. You know, so he can play the, like, oh, I'm doing charity now. I've, I've humbled myself. What, he he fled the, the scene of the crime. He yeah. went to the Hyatt Hotel and stood there for three minutes before he called the cops. He hired Navigator. Like, I don't want to hear it. You know, let him I have mean, his life, but we don't have to celebrate. Yeah, him. I mean, he was never he was never convicted of a crime. Obviously, he was never tried for a crime. Exactly. Uh, I mean, I think that's often the part that bugs me the most because you know, if you are the CCLA or whoever, it's it's kind of hard to say no to somebody, or it's harder to say nobody no to somebody when they don't have an actual like conviction on the record. I mean, it's hard to you know be the the the, the person to convict them you know years after the fact. That being said, I still I still think they they probably shouldn't have hired him. I mean, you know, the guy did um, you know get into a verbal altercation with a cyclist that led to the cyclist's death. I mean, even if it wasn't direct, um, you know, even if it wasn't directly responsible, there's a very least a good argument for serious negligence there. I'll I'll, I'll go on the record with this right now. I mean, Alan Borovoy, uh, formerly of the CCL. Basically, the guy behind the CCLA, now deceased, a, w- a wonderful man who I had the, the the privilege of interviewing, dedicated his life to civil liberties. Yeah. Will Michael Bryant dedicate his life to CCLA, or is this just another step on his way to getting back what he lost yeah. when when he killed Darcy Allen Shepard? Is this just another bit of of reputation laundering? Because it's a it's a it's a nonprofit. It's a high profile nonprofit. Uh, I asked them what he's getting paid. They they never wrote no, me back. It's a good salary. Uh, he's doing fine, and yeah. I and I don't think he'll be there ten years from now, or maybe even five. Duly noted. Justin, what do you have? Yeah, so I want to duly note this one this section of a wonderful ten minute exchange that I caught on uh, this UK TV channel. But I I just so I I'm telling you I don't see colouring people. I don't regard someone as being different if their skin tone is one and another. To me, just people are people. Do you think, as a white person in a society where the majority of people are white, you have a good understanding of? the ways in which race affects people psychologically. Because when you say you don't see racism, Michelle, I wouldn't expect you to see it, if I'm quite honest with you, because it's not your experience. I wouldn't imagine you get othered regularly. I wouldn't imagine that you carry and experience the baggage of being in a country that colonized on a white supremacist ideology. It was just mind-bending to me to watch this show, because it's just so, you know, British shows are just so foreign and different. and exotic, <laughs> you know? What is this show? It's hosted by this uh, woman named Afua Hirsch, and I'd never heard of her before. Evidently, she's uh, you know a name in the UK, just have never, never come across her. And she hosts this show, and it was just, it was it's basically her, uh, Hirsch, the host, but also sort of commentator and journalist, um, and all-around smart woman, sort of handling a panel of just like, ornery white people who seem to virulently disagree with her. And the, the topic was white supremacism, because, um, the now the current leader of UKIP, its ex girlfriend, was found to have been exchanging kind of wildly racist 
text messages about Meghan Merkel, the new royal consort, or whatever the, whatever the fuck her title is now. Uh, she's also I'm pretty know, sure it's not royal consort. But I have no idea. Yeah, I, okay. I really hate the monarchy, so this is so I don't understand. Proceed. Uh, but anyway, she she's the one kind of like very interesting thing about this is that uh, her, uh, Merkel is now the first kind of non-white person to enter into you know the the, the weird yeah. Germanic. Inbred, Austrian, Windsor, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, royal family. The media has been putting out some some kind of like very dog whistly racist things about her. Um, obviously, there's much you know sneering and jeering in the the the, the far right white supremacist yeah. in the UK. But now the media has sort of come around and everyone's celebrating this diversity and everything. So Hirsch basically kind of opens her show being like. No, 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 no! You can't just brush this under the rug. This is a serious thing we need to talk about. There is virulent white supremacism and racism in, in in the UK, and we should not try to brush that aside and pretend like it's fixed. Let's confront it. And every other panelist, to varying degrees, sort of jumps in and going goes, "Well, I'm not racist. I, I've, I, you know, and don't. That was not me trying to do a fake British accent. Uh, but you know, uh, we move past race. What, what else do you want? Uh, you know, it's not my fault for slavery. And it's it, it's funny because it's a lot of the same things you hear every day in Canada and in the US, but they were just it was so upfront and and visceral and combative and it was fascinating to watch her just try to basically dispatch them in this kind of a long form um you know you know talk show culture show politics show i love occasionally just kind of peering into the uh the uk and to a lesser extent you know australia and some other you know english-speaking countries and just watching their much more healthy interesting media ecosystem and just wanting so desperately to have it here in canada <laughs> i wasn't sure if you were heading to i want to duly note this train wreck or duly note this <laughs> wonderful show that everybody should check out duly noted justin before we move on this is the time when we thank our second sponsor our founding sponsor. Thanks, founding sponsor. FreshBooks. Tax time is coming up. You're a freelancer. How do you handle this? Do you, do you, do you keep a shoebox full of your receipts and things like that? No, I just plan on faking my own death when eventually I get audited. There is a better way. <laughs> is there? Nah, I'm pretty sure mine's pretty good. <laughs> it's called FreshBooks. And with FreshBooks, tax time is very simple, Justin. Uh, no need to fake your own death if you have a FreshBooks account. If you're running a small business or you're a freelancer, uh, all of your... Invoices, all of the HST that you've collected, all the HST that you spent, all of your expenses, it's all quickly assembled into reports that you can pass on to your accountant or use to file your own tax filing. Try this out for 30 days for free. You don't need to give them a credit card. And when you do become a customer, and I'm convinced that you will, tell them that Canada Land sent you. Go to freshbooks.com slash Canada Land and enter Canada Land in the how did you hear about us section. So they were murdered. Well, if you read the Toronto Star. Uh, the headline, Saturday paper, big, big text, they were murdered. Barry and, then, and, Barry and Honey Sherman, they were murdered. In a little, in little tiny you know, footnote at the bottom, maybe, according to an investigator who didn't see the crime scene and who is not actually working for the police. Barry and Honey Sherman, billionaires behind Apotex, uh, found deceased in their home. Mm -hmm. Police officially only say suspicious deaths, but- Everybody gets the same information from multiple police sources. Every media organization, murder-suicide, murder-suicide. Everybody I talk to in crime reporting uh, says the Occam's razor, once again, the, the simplest explanation, the most common explanation, it was a murder-suicide. He killed her and then himself. Yep, That's yep. almost, almost, almost always what happened. I'm always skeptical of, you know, like, well, the, you know, this billionaire guy involved in all kinds of conflicts, legal stuff, you know, stranger things have happened than, than uh, corporate uh, espionage-type uh, execution stuff. But anyhow... The cops want the public to know 
through their unofficial channels that this was a murder-suicide. What I want to focus on about this, because we're going to probably be talking about this for a long time on the yeah. show, is sourcing. Yeah. And and when you say police sources, people get the idea like, oh, this is a reporter who's such a good reporter and they've got such extensive network that, that the cop accidentally told me something. Or I've got a friend on the police force who happened to let it slide. That happens. But sources also sometimes are strategic leaks, right? And this seemed, I concluded that this was a strategic leak because every news organization had multiple police sources telling them the same information. I don't totally agree. I don't think there was necessarily a strategic leak because strategic leaks kind of have to have a strategy behind them. What was the strategy behind Toronto cops basically, you know, putting out this narrative that it was murder-suicide? I, I get that. To take heat off of them for not looking for a murderer. And to, and, to, and to decrease community. But you can do that. I mean, police do that all the time. It's a very simple line. We are not looking for any suspects at this time. And they haven't said that yet. So actually, that makes me kind of go, huh. Right, but you say that officially. Uh... But they haven't said that officially. Not as far as, I, not right. as, far as I've so seen. So you use a strategic leak to get that out but there why to calm down the story. Well, so here's the thing. I'm taking a shot in the dark here, but I think um, police... It really was police sources, you know, people speaking to various folks at, uh, you know, the Homicide Squad in, in Toronto and maybe, you know, other people who were at the crime scene um, who were probably saying, yeah, we think it's probably a murder-suicide. It's always a murder-suicide in these cases. It, that appears to be what it is. We don't have any evidence of a break-in, yada, yada, yada. Yeah. I, I think that got spun into police are investigating it as a murder-suicide, which is, which is correct. That is correct reporting. But I think we very quickly got to, um, you know, that being sort of the only avenue. Everything I've read um, suggests to me that police are still investigating. They're not, it's not as though they're not looking into other avenues. So, yes, yeah, so, but that's consistent with the strategy that I'm asserting is that, is that as the cops do an exhaustive investigation and leave open the possibility that it was a murder, they want to calm down the public. And so they let it slide unofficially, probably murder-suicide people. Yeah. Anyhow, wh what brings us to this conversation today is, is the next development in people wanting us to think a certain way about this. And this is very clear, and there's no ambiguity about the motives here. Yeah. The Sherman's family have dismissed from the start the idea that their father, uh, that, that, that Barry Sherman, could have possibly killed mm -hmm. uh, their mother. Uh, understandably so. Um, they have uh, criticized the police for leaking information that suggests as much. And they have hired their own investigators to investigate this. Uh, and I think we can probably conclude that they... That they, they, they wanted a murder to be investigated. <laughs> and yeah. uh, and now we have a Kevin Donovan byline, front page, Saturday Star, big headline, they were murdered, say the investigators, private that, investigators. I, I do find that incredible. Hired by the Shermans to come to exactly that conclusion. And I, mean, I, the, I have to yeah. question Donovan's, like, what is the responsibility of this? I mean, it, 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 like... To run that, and it had the desired effect, not just in the star, but there are now international headlines that are saying they were murdered, they were murdered, yeah. they were murdered. And they're all crediting it to report, Yeah, you know, as if it was the, the actual investigators. Now, I understand that the, the private investigators have not even been given access to the house. It's incredible. I mean, it was, I think, irresponsible to go with that. I, I think it's worth reporting. I mean, it is a, a counterweight. I mean, there is an interesting story in and of itself to be told of family and private investigators dispute police narrative that is a murder-suicide. That, to me, is very worthwhile to report. But let's not give it more credibility that it's due. I mean, yes. you have to consider the source for this. And I, I mean, my gut instinct, actually, kind of, I agree with the family. I don't think it was a murder-suicide. 
But hey, yeah, maybe not. If I were reporting the story, I would still hedge the hell out of that because you don't know shit. The cops always know more than you do. Um, and I and I think you have to still kind of give some deference to the police investigation. And if the police investigation, even through its anonymous sources, is saying murder-suicide, you still have to give that a considerable amount of weight. I don't know that the public has a right to know everything about this. hundred percent. But, but I definitely think that the, the public has a right not to be spun and, and yes. manipulated. The Shermans, it is estimated by another news reporter, are putting up to a million dollars into their own private investigation of this. They have a stated interest uh, in, in, in having this play out in the public in a certain way. For this, I'm not blaming them. For the star to serve them in this way, uh, uncritically, but okay, it would but be fine time, for Donovan to say, "Hey, the Sherman investigators are saying this," but to report it as, okay, and, the, and that's a Michael Cook decision to put it on the on the, on the front page as they were murdered. And now, Justin, we're reading conspiracy theorists in the states uh, in in the, these bizarre like Trump affiliated news sites saying, "Well, the Shermans were. Uh, this is what happens when you're too close to the Clintons." Oh yeah, I can only you know what I mean. I'm just waiting for the George Soros connection to show up. I find the whole thing really strange. Listen, is it definitely strange? Yes, this is what happens when you when you you know go through anonymous sources and on an active police investigation. Uh, at the same time, let's also not pretend as as though um, I would hope uh, that Donovan's just transcribing you know whatever his anonymous source is telling him. I would hope there'd be a little bit of due diligence or or, or you know uh, some verification that Donovan. Did, did you do. see any evidence of that due diligence or verification? No, in but the do reporting? you always see every level of detail that goes into you know? Fact checking some of these well, things. Well, no, I think we got to Especially do when you have a relationship with the anonymous yeah. source that kind of preserves their, you know, where they got that, that information. No, I mean, listen, I, maybe I'm giving everyone a little bit too much credit in this story, but, um, you know, I don't like the sort of back and forth leaking. I don't think this is helpful. I think, um, you know, as much as I, I, I like cooperating with police and I want police to be forthcoming in the course of investigation, I also don't want, you know, like narrative building through the media that's trying to kind of, you know, offset each other. I think this is not helpful, um, especially in this case where it is, you know, either it, it's simultaneously very tragic and very kind of, you know, troubling and horrifying. Um I would like the police to, you know, especially I think if the private investigators are putting out information that is, um, you know, wrong or misdirected, I think the police do kind of in this circumstance have a, have an obligation to come out and just publicly say, listen, here's some of the things we know and here's where you got it wrong and here's the facts that we have in front of us. Take them, you know, at face mm-hmm. value. You know, I think we've got so many different parties kicking up so much dust around this yeah. that, that one effect of that is that it makes it harder for us to ever ultimately figure out exactly what happened. Yeah, I, yeah, I think this level of, of sort of uh, back and forth only actually hampers the investigation. Okay, Justin, that is our Canada Land Shortcuts for today. Well, it's fun bickering with you for another hour. Thank you for joining me for it. Uh, if people want to email me about it, they can do so by sending me something at jesse at canadalandshow.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Canadaland. Justin, where can people find you? At PD McLeod on Twitter. Very good. We have a Facebook page, and if you hit like on it, our stories will show up in your Facebook news feed. You can also just go to our website at canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. Our producer is Abby Madon. Syndication of this show is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. And if you like what we do... Please support us on Patreon.
the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.